How did you feel when you left the theater? I almost walked out while I was watching it. Not no, because, on. yeah, the only reason I stayed was because I owed it to the franchise. Yo, what up? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. Welcome to 2022, the new decade. I mean, it's not really the new decade because you don't start in year zero in the Gregorian calendar, but fuck it, we're pretending that we are, and so welcome to Owls at Dawn in the new decade, sorta. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden-Smith. And I'm Troy Polidori. And dude, since when do we not get to decide when decades start and when decades end? Uh, you know, I've actually seen a lot of really fun and interesting debate if you're a super hyper nerd about this shit online, because I guess there's actually some historical disagreement about this, that you can, in fact, start a decade at year zero, because that's just kind of what we do. And then you have other people who are like the realists who are like, no, man, we got to realize that you go from one BCE to one CE and there's no zero. So technically decades start from year one, but nobody ever measures them that way because we measure them by 80s, 90s, you know, 70s. So we start at the seven zero. So I don't know, man. Interesting shit, huh? No, I believe there was a year zero, dude. They just <laughs> wiped that shit from the record. We just don't remember down. it. Well, because that was the year of the incarnation, man. So how there's no temporal when the when the infinite erupts into the finite, time suspends. So yeah, we dude, forgot like some about Doctor Who timey wimey shit was going on right then. I was thinking like Men in Black, that button that they push that makes you like forget your memory. It's like something like that shit. Oh, Remember for, like that? the whole world for yeah, like the aliens did yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. There's probably a satellite out there with that technology. It's just just in case some shit goes down, you know. I mean, I'm sure this is something that Graham Hancock and some of those other people who believe that aliens like built the pyramids and shit like that are probably talking about. I don't know if he actually thinks that shit, but you know, whatever. Who who knows? It could be. It could be. Anyway, this week we are going to be talking about Star Wars, the new film that just came out that everyone's been freaking out about. We're going to give our opinions on it. We're going to parse the film. We're going to talk about the entire franchise, etc., etc. You know how we do. Do a little BSing about this film. Troy, when did you see it? Um, a week ago. A little over a week okay. ago. The weekend so, it came it, out. Yeah, yeah. I saw it like, I was going to see it the day, actually, that it came out, but we were recording our previous episode. I saw it the next day. And I will say that my audience really sucked. And really? I think, yeah, they made one audible outburst collectively, and I will tell you about that later if you remind me. But other than that, I mean, there was no, like, cheering when Lucasfilms came up or when the Star Wars music first started. There was no applause at the end. Even if it's a film that you don't like, usually there's always fanboys, right? Fanboys, fangirls, fan peeps, fankin other kin, whatever. Um, there was none of that shit. So it was really kind of shitty, whereas I saw all kinds of cool footage of like friends and stuff like that in LA, especially, of course it's LA, but people like dressed up and everyone had their lightsabers. I needed some of that, you know? Yeah, it's funny. I did see it in Southern California, but there um, there wasn't anybody dressed up, at least that I saw. Aren't they kind of cracking down on that shit since of um, some of those incidents like in Colorado? Yeah, but it's Star Wars, bro. Yeah, I know, like, right? 
Yeah, I mean, The Dark Knight is like a dark and ominous film, and the Joker's kind of, you know, a figure of anarchy. Like, what, is someone going to come in like fucking Darth Maul and get crazy? <laughs> the, the people dressed like Palpatine with old man makeup and fucking... Yeah, man. <laughs> okay, they got to shoot like stormtroopers. Oh, that's pretty dark. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> it's so dark, bro. I know. I'm. It's super dark right now. At least they'd miss, you know. Oh, jeez. That's right, because they have terrible fucking aim. Uh, that's one consistency through every single film, all nine of them. I appreciate oh. the yeah, um, the exposition or the exposing there of uh, you know, government uh, you know, inefficiency. You just can't hire yes. people who can shoot straight. That's right, man. That's right. So yeah, so that's what we're going to talk about on our main segment. Um, of course, if you paid attention to our last episode, you know that we have a new sponsor uh, that is doing like a little test sponsorship with us. So go out there and order your shit from EngineSwim.com so that they will continue to sponsor us. Um, but basically, Engine Swim is an athletic company slash swimwear company, and they do accessories and things like that as well. So um, they offer really cool things for swimming if you are into swimming. If you are not into swimming and you want to get into swimming, I would recommend that you do get into swimming. It's a fucking amazing workout. My body has completely tightened up and transformed just over the last couple of months from swimming pretty consistently. Um, and if you go to EngineSwim.com, you will be able to get 20% off if you use the checkout code OWLS. It's checkout code OWLS. I believe it's capital O, but maybe not just capital O, but just try both. But 20% off is a pretty good fucking deal. And I didn't say this in the last one, but they ship internationally everywhere. And I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that the currency doesn't change based on where you are in the region, which means that all the prices are in Australian dollars. So if you're in the US or if you're in the UK or if you're in Europe and you have a stronger currency than the Aussie dollar, you get a massive discount even on what the prices are there. So you're fucking hooked up, man. Um, so international shipping, uh, cool workout equipment. They've got shirts, tank tops. They got water bottles, backpacks, towels. They do goggles for swimming. They do the cool like tight shorts for swimming, like the spandex looking ones, the ones that we call speedos in America. That's actually inappropriate just like when you call q-tips q-tips <laughs> but it's actually cotton swabs you know Kleenex, it's not really Kleenex, yeah yeah kleenex right it, but same sort of thing but the tight little like brief looking things as well so they do those so go to engineswim.com and get your badass workout gear it's 2020 new year's resolutions get fit get ripped yeah we also want to say if you want to support us in other ways you can go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn there we have multiple tiers of support, and you can get access to things like the monthly newsletter that we release every month with extra sticky leaves and extra shitty minutes, as well as bonus episodes that we release occasionally only uh, to patrons. Um, and of course, the ability to contribute to our democracy motherfuckers, where you get to choose the patron-sponsored episode um, for that period, which we should have a poll going up uh, by the time that this is released, yeah? Yes, that sounds right. We shall indeed. And I just want to make a quick special announcement. Um, so I, we don't talk about it too much on this podcast, but I did write a book, and it came out last year, and it's called Sartre, Imagination, and Dialectical Reason. And part of the reason I don't talk about it is because it's only out in hardback right now. I mean, there's an ebook that's out that is affordable. You could buy the ebook, but a lot of people still don't like ebooks. So I haven't been really promoting it or talking about it too much, except in like like really like niche Sartrean academic circles. Um, but the book is out and actually I'm going to be teaching a course at what's called the Melbourne School for Continental Philosophy 
on Sartre's critique of dialectical reason, but basically around the way that I interpret it in my book. Basically, I'm teaching my book. Um, I'm, I'm going to be talking about the critique of dialectical reason, but totally through the framework of my book, dealing with a lot of the debates that I'm kind of trying to work through, problematize, and then expand on in my text, and then offer my fresh reading of the text. So I've had a lot of people ask me like, oh, you know, I want to know about your the ideas that you're working about and whatnot, and I have been like, hold on, you know, I'm, I'm going to be doing some podcasts, like I'm going to hopefully go on Rev Left Radio and talk about my book and other stuff, but I've been holding off because the book is just so fucking expensive and I feel bad even like talking about it because the people aren't going to fucking buy it and then they forget about it. The paperback comes out this year, That I'll talk about that when it does come out, but in the meantime, check out this course that I'm going to be teaching. Um, it's the Melbourne School for Continental Philosophy. And it's super fucking affordable. You don't have to be in Melbourne either. They have um, distance options available so that you can just listen to the lectures online. And it's five seminars over the course of one week. And I believe they're archived too. So it's not like you have to be up at weird hours of the day because of the time difference. So you'll be able to have access to them and kind of just participate in the seminars. It's, there's no homework or anything involved. There's reading, obviously, but there's no homework or anything like that. And I'm going to provide all the reading. And it's super, super, super affordable. You can sign up for a waged rate, which means that if you have a job, then you pay $120. And this is Australian again. So remember, in the US, it's probably like what? Like 80 bucks, 90 bucks, something like that. And if you're in the UK, it's like 60 quid, maybe something, maybe, maybe a little more than that. I don't know if it's double, but, um, and then if you're unwaged, like if you're a student or if you're on, like if receiving welfare benefits or anything like that, then it's only $80. Again, Australian. So you get a huge, massive discount. So go to the Melbourne School of Continental Philosophy's website and you can sign up. Um, it's called Summer School because remember, we're in the Southern Hemisphere here and it is our summer session. And that is going to be from February 17th through the 21st is when the actual seminar takes place. Um, and then, of course, if you're needing distance learning, then you can just access those archives whenever you're available. Um, but yeah, so go to Melbourne School of Continental Philosophy, sign up for that. It'll also make me look really cool if I have a bunch of people sign up for the class. So <laughs> if you could do that, that would really ingratiate me to the uh, Australian philosophical elite. So, but do that. Go to, um, I believe it is mscp.org. Org. That's Melbourne School Continental Philosophy, mscp.org. And you can find out all the information on that. I can't remember what the class is called. It's something about like dialectical existentialism, Marxist, or, or like Sartre's dialectical existentialism or something like that. I can't remember what it's called. I can't remember what I named the course, but you'll be able to find it. My <laughs> name is on there. It's fucking on there. Like his, his Marxist existentialism or something. But it's basically looking at Sartre's Marxism mixed with his existentialism all through the lens of my weird new reading from my book. So check that shit out. I'm excited about that, dude. I'm really excited to uh, pirate those lectures on some, like, you know, Russian <laughs> websites when they're done. Yeah, that won't happen. Sign up for the <laughs> class. I don't get credit if you do that, so sign up for the class. <laughs> All right, so we've mentioned before that um, if you leave us a five-star review on iTunes or some other, you know, major review website and you ask a quick question that we can answer in a minute or two, then we will read it and name you uh, on air and then answer the question to the best of our ability. We have a review from Mandalore159, which is appropriate, right? It's a Star Wars fan. I'm, I'm anticipating here. Um, hmm. Asking us if we've listened to the album Demon Days by Gorillaz and how we would analyze the themes uh, and their application to the contemporary cultural moment from the album. So I don't know about Wait, you. Wait, real quick. Real quick, Mandalore one five nine. Is that a clever way of actually saying Mandalorian? 
I don't think so. Because the I and then the five could be like an A and then the nine could be like the N. That's a stretch, man. Okay. But maybe. Mm. All right. Sorry. So yeah, my thought was um, I listened to Demon Days uh, back in 2005 when it came out. Of course, everyone knows the song Feel Good Inc. from that album, which was a huge hit. But I don't remember there being a really cohesive theme to the album, although I'm sure that there is. So um, Mandalore159 or Mandalorian, uh, whomever you, uh, you are, reach out to us. Uh, let us know what you think that the theme is. And I'd love to kind of go back and forth and maybe have some time to listen to the album between now and then um, yeah. and see if I find something. And anybody else out, out there, if you uh, know of there being a cohesive theme to the album, that's interesting that we could talk about. Uh, hit us up on social media and let us know. And then we'll uh, try and, you know, correspond there what's the dude's name that's the singer from and from blur and shit yeah damon alburn yeah is he known for being like a political politically astute commentator i mean i'm sure i'm sure somewhat Socially, yeah yeah i mean I, i'm a fan of gorillas and blur back in the day but not a huge fan so i'm not really uh enmeshed in that whole thing i don't know too much about his own like ideological um trappings and stuff like that okay I mean, I'm not really the hugest Gorillaz fan. Um, I mean, and this is going to sound super shitty, but you know how there was like a, a war between uh, Gorillaz and Oasis? I was on the Oasis side, not out of like a You mean principles. Blur and Oasis? That's what I meant, not Gorillaz. Blur and Oasis. Um, it's So it's not like on a principled stance. So for me, I just kind of never got into Blur. And then when Gorillaz came out, I just – like I didn't have the investment in his project. So – I, I think that would have contributed more to me paying attention to gorillas, but since I didn't, I was kind of—I just turned a blind eye to his whole thing, you know. Wait, you were—you were on an oasis over Blur. Again, maybe out of ignorance, like I said, it wasn't like a principled thing. It wasn't like I sat there and I caught—I I sat down and I listened to both of them, and then I made like a reasoned judgment. It was—it was probably out of habit, and I—you were also ten, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's forgivable when you're you know, a preteen. Yeah. But that just like, that set my music listening habits, you know? Yeah. So like, like obviously song number two was fucking huge and that blew up everywhere. But like, I couldn't tell you another fucking song by title or maybe even like if you played it for me, I would probably only know like one or two hooks from like Blur's soundtrack uh, from their Au revoir. And then Gorillaz, like I only know the ones that were on like MTV and on the radio and shit like that. Yeah. You know? But the whole thing about like Blur versus Oasis, you know, um, it's like the the debate in America was Pearl Jam or Nirvana, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, the answer is, I mean, they're both okay, but there's like way better shit out there, you know? <laughs> yeah, one of those dudes that does those really good YouTube videos did a uh, a whole expose on the Blur Oasis thing. And I didn't even realize it was a thing until I watched that video essay. Huh. Who was it? I can't remember who it was, but someone did something on that. What's the guy's name? How did I forget his fucking name? The English dude that does the really cool video analyses of like pop punk before Dookie or pop punk after Dookie and shit like that. Oh, um, yeah. Is it Trash Theory? Yeah, Trash Theory. I think he did one on it. I'll have to check that out then. I don't remember. I, I think it was when I was in the hospital and I was just like listening to everything that he did. I literally watched every single video. <laughs> So, 
All right, sweet. Well, I think that's enough housekeeping admin preamble shit. Let's get into the meat of the episode. It's time for the shitty minute. This is where one of us gets to rant and rave about something that's pissing us off. After a couple week layoff and me outsourcing my shitty minute, it is Troy's turn to get whatever it is off of his chest. So go ahead, man. What's up? All right. So you how know can you how already I- be angry? It's a new year, fresh new year, new year, new fresh start and shit like that. How can you already have something to like air? Nah, dude. It's it just bleeds over into the next year. Oh, does it? Okay. Um, so you know how every year now Obama releases his list of like favorite cultural <laughs> products? Are you gonna talk about surveillance capitalism? <laughs> Briefly. <laughs> okay. Yeah, go ahead. So it, it for one sec, it's like it's kind of sad that like Obama's um the the way in which he was biggest in the news over the last, I don't know, like six months or whatever, um, other than like vaguely through a third party threatening to end Bernie's candidacy for the democratic nomination (laughs) Um, is this like list of cultural products that um, like an intern develops and then posts on his Twitter. Um, Mm. That's kind of sad for one thing Uh, Mm. because he's, you know, a legitimately like intelligent and um, sophisticated person and should probably wield more authority in this country than he currently does. But that said, um, he releases these, you know, favorite uh, cultural products, books, music, movies, TV shows um, at the end of the year. And people talk about it. And uh, I remember it being in the news in the previous few years. But this seems like the the, the one in which it was the biggest news item because it wasn't just here's Obama's favorite things. There's some like, you know, political uh, angles to it as well. Uh, I do mm-hmm. want to point out that uh, I guess I should ask you first. Have you watched Fleabag yet? No. Okay, so this is well. Spoiler. No, I mean, I watched I watched the first season, and then I watched the first two episodes of the second season. Okay, so you've seen the first season. Yeah, yeah. So he listed Fleabag season two as one of his like three favorite shows um, of the year, and I yep. think it's kind of hilarious that if you watch season two, that means he's watched season one, and the opening scene of the entire show is Fleabag um, pleasuring herself to a, an Obama speech. <laughs> <laughs> which means he watched that and hopefully Michelle was there too. And that is really hilarious to think about. Um, yes. And that he listed it and that he had to put season two there just so that it wouldn't be obvious that it was the season one or the whole show. You know, he didn't that's put the brilliant. specific seasons of any other show. Um, so that's hilarious. But there's, there's two things or at least two things that I saw that a lot of people got worked up about. And one was, as you mentioned, um, Shoshana Zuboff's The Age of Surveillance Capitalism being on his list of favorite books of the year. And the other being um, Obama listing Parasite as one of his favorite films of the year. <laughs> and the takes seem, at least most of the takes, as I kind of perused social media, seem to be something like either this is just a, a grand um, affront of hypocrisy, right? Parasite being this film about economic inequality um, and the plight of the poor uh, in the world and that, you know, kind of casting that beside Obama's sort of lack of um, focus on economic inequality, um, especially after the financial crisis, being like, a, how could you possibly understand the themes in this movie, um, given your history as president, that being one kind of take. And then with the, the age of surveillance capitalism, I haven't read the book, have you? Uh, bits of it, and then I've read quite a bit about it. So I've I've read large chunks of it, but it's like five hundred something pages, and I just don't have time. 
Yeah, I remember hearing a lot about it, but obviously I haven't read it um, or, or too much in terms of secondary sources. But uh, I guess the, the take basically being something like um, Obama did is criticized heavily in the book, uh, especially for some for like the revolving door between the industry types uh, becoming uh, lobbyists and, and getting uh, entry it's, into it's the Obama go, it's Google. Google is referenced explicitly, like the revolving door between Google and his uh, like the Oval Office or something or his administration, something right. along those lines. And so him listing the book either means he's a you know an incredible hypocrite, or this is just as many suspect a list developed by interns to sort of mm-hmm. make the develop his image as being the sophisticated intellectual. When maybe he does or doesn't read these books or is familiar with them, but no matter the point is that it's sort of developing an image around him that he can then sell to Netflix for his you know five billion dollar deal, whatever it is, mm-hmm. um, and. You know, those things may or may not be true. They're obviously speculations, and I don't really care if they are or not true. But I think there's a kind of a an important misunderstanding about um, the way that well-intentioned, sophisticated liberals think. I think it's perfectly consistent with Obama having read these books and having seen these films and really understanding the general themes uh, involved, and also having the sort of politics that he does. The the problem with the kind of centrist liberal isn't a lack of sort of factual knowledge, right? It's not a lack of, of sort of superficial understanding. It's more about the way that this knowledge is cast um, in, a, in, a, in a more abstract sense. I'm, I'm, being, I'm being sort of vague here, but what I mean is hmm. I think when Obama sees, or someone like Obama, or someone with sort of centrist liberal policies, sees parasites, they get the fact that economic inequality is bad, but they don't see that and have any inclination that we can fix that. Right? This is more like this is the plight of humanity. Right? Mm. This is what human beings are like. It's a human-centered problem, not a capitalism-centered problem. Or you. Or read, this is the the fault of like crony capitalism or something like that. There's some sort of qualification, right? That there's corruption in the system, lobbyists and special interests and stuff like that. That's the corrupting of the system. Yeah, I mean, you can say that with like age of surveillance capitalism, right? But with with yeah. parasite, you can't really say that, right? Because there's there, there's no real um, strong critique of of capitalism explicitly in the film, right? That's more of an, a thing you kind of have to read off of it. Um, you can, I think, you could watch parasite and really misunderstand it as being a problem specifically about human beings that can't be solved. Like this is just mm. human nature, like some sort of like sin nature about them, right? It's kind of you could you could have that sort of Christocentric reading of the film, possibly. Definitely. I think that'd be incorrect because you're missing the fact that these relations are structured um, by capitalism, right? There's people who are working for one another. Um, but that that aside, and then sort of the age of surveillance capitalism, right? Any any critique of Obama, you could see it as a yeah. Um, there's an important sense in which. Um, there is this revolving door between industry types becoming lobbyists and working for the administration and, and, and uh, so on and so forth and, and see that and acknowledge it and then just say, but there's not a lot I can do about that. Right. <laughs> um, this yeah. is just the way things are. Right. Um, this is something that, you know, the Clintons and the Obamas really shared despite some of their differences. And that's that to make the system work, you have to work with the rich and the powerful. You have to work with them and try your best to convince them to do what's right. And 95% of the time you're going to fail, right? And they're going to just walk all over you. But the 5% of the time you succeed, you'll get a little bit done that will make the world a little better, right? And that seems to be the way that I think many um, 
sort of liberal centrists think about how you have to engage in politics. And that's just fundamentally different than an understanding of mm-hmm. politics as ex- the exercise um, of power. That then means you can't really work with the rich and powerful and get anything but crumbs or meager gains. Then instead you have to take power, right? And that's, that's mm-hmm. cast the net very, very uh, widely and abstractly. And there's obviously much more nuance than that involved in understanding of, of wielding political power and what political power actually is. But I do want to just point out the fact that we don't have to say something like, oh, Obama doesn't read these books and doesn't intern develops these for him, or maybe he reads them, but you know he doesn't really understand them or something like that. No, I, I think he probably both reads them and understands them pretty well, but the the lens through which he interprets them and that many um, you know Obama nots do is not going to be the same as someone with a more leftist perspective who understands power and political power specifically in a very different way. And that's really the difference, right? It's the lens through which these things are interpreted. Um, an understanding of, of uh, politics and exercises of political power um, through which they're interpreted. That really is the difference, right? Not just the factual understanding itself. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I, to add another layer to this too is, remember, Obama was an academic. And as a professional academic, you are kind of schooled in the process of cross-referencing and criticizing and that dialogical engagement. So it's also very likely that he could have read this book and just been like, interesting critique. I don't necessarily agree. It wasn't a revolving door. Maybe that's uncharitable. Uh, You have to work with the industry tech. And I was doing other things of which Zuboff is unaware. And yeah, there are probably bad things that can happen with biopolitical management and uh, a disciplinary society under surveillance capitalism, but this is something else that we were doing. And, you know, there are ways to work around this in a dialogical or even we might say dialectical sense that doesn't somehow mean that you can apply like a hypocrisy critique and be like, well, clearly Obama doesn't understand what this book is because it was critical of him. Well, no, like he is, I think, productively in, or he could be productively engaging with um, with that, with a criticism of him. You know, without somehow that's like signaling cognitive dissonance or something like that. Yeah, and even as I'm saying, he could agree wholeheartedly with the criticism. Instead, there was a a whole revolving door between Google and his administration. And then just say, yeah, but it was a necessary evil. The only way to work with Google is to allow this to happen. And we got some meager gains out of it, and that was worth it. Or, I mean, who fucking, who knows? There's even another possibility, and this is the totally naive and optimistic one, where he kind of is like, fuck, man, maybe maybe I did make some mistakes, you know? Nah, dude. (laughs) <laughs> that one's up, that one's off the board, dude. It's pretty clear it's, that but it is the leaks possible. that have been happening, the leaks that have been happening lately, that he's yeah. siding more with the centrists than with the Warren Sanders kind of broad wing of the party, makes me think that now he thinks that his legacy needs to be secured, and that's what he's concerned about right now. Oh, maybe. So don't don't fuck with things like the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, probably. Maybe I'm wrong. I would love to be wrong about that, but I, I don't think that I am. Yes. Well, it is at least possible in the realm of possibility in the realm of logical possibility that that happened i hope so man i don't want you to think you're a pollyanna but (laughs) (laughs) yeah well cool yeah i mean i i think i i didn't even see that parasite was on his list but i saw the um the zuboff book and then i saw all of the kind of like it was like uh in unison lefties were like how could this possibly be? He's a fucking idiot, like, you know, or whatever, you know, and it, I don't know. Yeah, that, that kind of take, I think, just misunderstands the way that, that centrists think, right? Maybe just the way that humans think and are, you know? 
Yeah, that too. But even more specifically, just specific way those interests think. Like they have a, a reasoned way of looking at the world, even if you think it's incorrect, right? They're, they're not just yeah. fundamentally irrational. Yeah. Well, also remember you did like a shitty minute year, years ago, ages ago, episodes ago, it may have been a couple of years ago, on the deficiency of hypocrisy critique. And this kind of seems to fit into this idea that somehow there's value in pointing out like some sort of apparent, maybe we could say contradiction or tension. And the question is, is like, what really are you gaining from doing this, right? Like, does this actually reveal some sort of inherent limitation or problem? I mean, I don't know that it actually does. It seems to just be kind of like a lazy critique that comes from like a real understanding of what a type of potent, productive, critical discourse would be. Exactly. I think that's exactly right. Nine times out of 10, if you accuse someone of hypocrisy, especially if it's someone online that you don't know, you're wrong. Like they're not being a hypocrite. You just don't understand their their values and the sort of stratification of their values and, and their knowledge correctly. Just look to the fact that they're all that the right has is hypocrisy critiques, right? It's all that they cast against the left. And every single time they do it, they have just exposed fundamental lack of, of understanding of the way that yes. people on the center and the left think. Just look at that and be like, you know what? Every time you do the same to the right or to centrists, you're probably doing the same thing. Maybe you, right. you dress it up in some academic garb or academic sounding garb, some good verbiage, but it's probably just fundamentally misunderstanding their point of view, which can still yeah. be wrong and, and while being you know, non-hypocritical. Yep, yep. Indeed, my friend. Yep, yep. So that, that made me pissy this week. Well, right on. Well, I'm glad you got that off your chest. Now uh, we can really start the new decade and we can talk about something else that we might have to rant a little bit about. Yeah, yeah dude, some Star Wars. Let's do it. So we should probably talk about our bona fide. We start talking about Star Wars in case people start yelling at us on the internet. Um, okay. What is your history and experience with Star Wars? Since we know that um, your childhood experience with Star Wars fundamentally uh, casts you as a certain kind of Star Wars mm -hmm. understander, right? Yeah, I can't remember. I think it was How I Met Your Mother. I can't remember the exact metric, but there's some like weird scale thing that they that they use to say like if you were born at a certain time and you were of a certain age by which you were exposed to Return of the Jedi, then you love the Ewoks and you love Return of the Jedi. But if you're born like outside of that, then you just kind of don't get it. And I'm definitely one of those people that was born within that, whatever that parameter is, because I fucking loved Return of the Jedi as a little kid um, and Empire Strikes Back. I watched Empire and Return, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of time. And I probably only watched A New Hope, you know, in, in comparison, like I would say a handful of times. And I think that was because of, um, one, like the people that I was watching with. And two, then just once you get hooked into something as a kid, you just, you know, especially if you're watching shit over and over again, which I did and sometimes still do, then uh, you just like kind of fall into the same patterns, right? So as a kid, my uh, stepmother's dad, so my grandfather on that side, he was a huge science nerd. He actually worked on like the B-2 bomber and shit like that on the radar system. So he was like a total like techie kind of nerdy dude. So from him, I watched Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi all the time whenever I was over at that house. Like, I remember sitting in the den that was like his office. 
and I was surrounded by paraphernalia and like all kinds of other like military stuff and I thought that I was like some sort of like space military cadet like learning like I think that's how it was for me it was like training for me right um and uh, and so I was obsessed I was obsessed with those films I loved those films I watched them all the time and then on the other side of my family my mom she would take me to the public library to rent VHSs and I would rent like over and over again James Bond films and Star Wars films so I watched well, those them James all the time. Bond films explain a lot about you dude <laughs> yeah. Sean Connery yeah. is your Bond, right? To be honest, it was Roger Moore. Oh man, um, yeah, man, I fucking loved. I mean, I, I, I come on, Sean Connery is amazing, but I loved Roger Moore, The Spy Who Loved Me, and um, For Your Eyes Only were my two favorites, and then Moonraker I loved too because I thought Jaws was just a weird fucking villain. Um, but uh, I mean, I love like you know Goldfinger and From Russia with Love as well. But no, I was all about the more the more Bond films, but. Anyway, so I watched Star Wars a lot, and then I have a kind of sentimental attachment to Star Wars now more, I'd say, with my mom, because when the prequels came out, I waited in line on, like, opening night to go with my mom, my stepdad, and my sister, who I think was just a little baby when, like, the first prequel came out. What was it? The Phantom Menace? Yeah. And then it it just became, like, a, a thing. Whenever the new ones came out, I would go with my mom. And then so the last time I was in California just so happened to be when um well, not the last time i was in california but when the force awakens came out i happened to be in california uh, it, maybe it was a few days after it came out and i went and i saw it with my mom um and so it was kind of like a thing like a traditional thing that i would go with my mom and enjoy the star wars so i have a, a very i would say robust emotional attachment to the franchise i mean i you know i don't like frequent the forums and i don't like I've never been to like a conference or anything like that. Um, but, you know, I really do enjoy the the world of Star Wars that Lucas created. Yeah, so I think I have a pretty similar background. I mean, um, I loved the original trilogy as a kid. I think one summer when I really kind of became a dedicated fan, maybe I was like 9, 10, I was really young. I think I, I watched on VHS the original trilogy um, probably 30 or 40 times over a summer. I was uh, staying at my grandparents' house and I just played it ceaselessly. And I would save up my allowance every week to go to Toys R Us and buy a new model um, spaceship. I had like Boba Fett's ship and X-Wing and A-Wing and a TIE fighter and all this stuff, right? Um, Hmm. So I I was really into it. I probably at this point still know every line from the original trilogy just because of watching it so much as a kid. And then I remember the prequels coming out and just hating them. And when did they come out? Like Mm. 99? Was that the first one? Gosh, it must have been. Yeah. Something like that. So I was like 13, 14. So I think I was a little bit old enough at that point to understand how bad they were. Um, mm. And that kind of ruined it for me. And I think I I didn't become like an unfan at that point. But I, I certainly lost my sort of uh, you know, slavish appeal, um, desire to do everything Star Wars all the time. And it didn't yeah. like ruin my fandom because I, w- I was pretty excited when, when Disney um, bought Lucasfilm and then started to work on the, the new trilogy. And I remember watching um, Force Awakens and enjoying it. It certainly was, as a, just as a film, basically a film so much better than the prequels, like actually a cohesive film that wasn't like laugh out loud, hilariously bad. Yeah. But I do remember watching it with a little bit more of a critical eye for the first time and mm. thinking, my God, like this is, this is kind of ridiculous in a, in a more deep thematic way. <laughs> um, mm. 
at the very least, just in terms of it being a complete rehash of A New Hope, right? Episode four. Right. Um, yeah, like beat so, yeah. beat. Yeah, exactly. And purposefully so, right? It was very much yeah. a, let's just do, it's explicitly, not even in a sort of subversive way, explicitly just do A New Hope over again because to get those same feels that people got in 1977 or whenever it was when A New Hope came out. Um, and and for the first time seeing Star Wars with a critical eye, which I don't think I could go back and watch the original trilogy with a critical eye. It's so deeply embedded in me and so connected to like my emotional connection with those films. I don't think I could go back and really watch hmm. it with a true critical eye. Like you could you could just like watch it and kind of break it down that way, but you're still gonna have this affection for some of the ridiculous moments and uh, Mark Hamill's bad acting and and everything else, which is still like even when you see that, it's almost heartwarming, right? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't have that feeling with the new trilogy as, as much as I think they're obviously so much better as films than the, the prequels were. Um, so yeah, I think it, having this, a chance to have a little bit more of a critical eye is interesting. Um, that uh, maybe the, the zoomers will have that same affection for this trilogy that we had for the original one. I don't know. Gosh, that's interesting. I wonder, I mean, imagine if you're five years old when you first saw the force awakens and your your parents' enthusiasm is imbued into you. So that creates this kind of like mythical mm. aura, right? And then two years later, you see the next one, and then you see the next one. You're 10 years old, and you've got this trilogy of your own. And then your parents show you the original. And you might look at the original and kind of think it's chintzy and the special effects aren't as good. Um, but still, like, it, it, it seems entirely likely that there will be a massive generation of people around the world who are going to have that kind of attachment, uh, you know, at least an analogous attachment like I would have had to the original or like my parents would have had even to the original, right? Like, you know, when my, well, my dad would have been 17 when the first one came out, so it wouldn't have been the same. But like, let's say the Gen Xers, right, who were like, they were five, six, seven years old when that film comes out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's much as you say that you can tell that the original trilogy that they're old films because of the special effects and and stuff like that. They still hold up pretty amazingly well, I think. Um, like practical I, I, effects, baby. I love yeah, me dude. some practical all the, effects. All the models, miniatures. Fuck. Yeah, so dude. good, dude. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Can you think of another movie that's from 1980 or before that a kid could watch and not get bored by, purely because of the formal aspects like that? Alien. I mean, a kid shouldn't be watching Alien, but yeah, obviously it's the <laughs> ultimate example of a film that will stand the test of time in terms of practical effects and stuff. But um, honestly, like no BS, look at Star Wars and then go watch fucking Cats and you tell me <laughs> what's better in the effects department. Like, yeah. come on, dude. You're talking about a, a multi, multi-million dollar film with a huge studio and all the digital technology and it looks like fucking shit versus this passion project made by you know a very young director who's using miniatures and models and it still looks kind of cool you know yeah, dude i think it still it's does it holds wizardry up. i know so so what was your overall feeling on rise of skywalker how did you feel when you left the theater i almost walked out while i was watching it no, not because yeah the only reason i stayed was because i owed it to the franchise and to myself. <laughs> That's it. Literally, I shit you not. I almost walked out. I was like, should I even, I could, I, it wasn't like I almost like was like leaning forward in my seat, but 
if I'm watching a film and that thought enters my mind, that's pretty radical because I never do that, you know? Um, but I literally had the thought. I was like, I could walk out right now and I don't think I would feel cheated, you know? Like, wow. It, yeah. yeah. So so why? Elaborate. Uh, okay. So I was critical of The Last Jedi, but not because of why the fandom was critical of The Last Jedi. I didn't get angry because I thought that it somehow was disrespectful to the lore and to the lineage and to the pers- the character of Luke or any of that shit. I just thought it was way, way, way over the top, cheesy, expositional, the kind of SJW message was so try hard. And listen, guys, I'm a leftist, so I, I want some progressive themes in my movies, but it just felt so cheesy. Like the bit where Rose and Finn are on that fucking planet with the animals, I was just like, oh my god, this is so heavy-handed. And, it, and I know, it's Star Wars. Star Wars is heavy-handed, good versus evil kind of thing. But if you watch, there was something charming about the original trilogy. The way that they paid off the emotional tension between good versus good versus evil was so tight and condensed because it was so simplified, right? Like the the battle between Luke and Darth Vader and you know giving over to the anger and to the darkness and stuff like that and then of course the stoic side of like controlling the force in the other way and not giving into your anger and you know obi-wan on the other side right um and luke on that side um and it, but the way that it paid it off emotionally was that it built up this story so patiently that by the time you got to those moments that that were very expositional or very kind of like black and white um, they didn't feel to me, and they still don't feel to me, and again, maybe I'm just totally biased by my history, so maybe I can't even look at this with a critical lens, but it feels like it actually earned the payoff, the emotional payoff, whereas I don't feel like you got that with The Last Jedi. So I kind of just thought it was, there's too much, there are too many characters, they tried to do too many things, they tried to say many too, too, uh, too many things, and there were some interesting things, like, you know, like the democratization of the Force or whatever, I thought that was kind of interesting, and but it still felt really cheesy, like that, like, Dickensian kid at the end, like raising his fist in the air, like, hey, we're all going to fight the evil empire or the first order or whatever. I was like, ah, it's whatever. Um, and then it just, so it just felt kind of, it just didn't work for me. Right. Um, and then this one I thought was just so bad in the sense that it circumvented so many of the paths that Ryan Johnson laid. It tried to just basically go back to the stuff that Abrams made about like Finn sensing the force and then it like made them so cheesy and again so heavy-handed and so explicit in this new one that it just felt so try-hard and it felt like it was totally circumventing the kind of like trajectory that was given to Finn in the second one. Um, so it kind of like was like it goes off on a path and it's like, yeah, we're just going to kind of ignore a lot of that stuff. Um, I also thought that uh, that they were trying to do too much with too many characters. I thought the emotional payoff with Leia didn't quite work for me. I understand you got a lot of difficulties to work with as an actor who passed away, but it just felt um, a little too easy that like she gives up herself. This new force that like you can like imbue yourself into another entity i thought that came out of nowhere and was kind of cheesy then this whole side story about how leia did all this crazy training and had her own fucking lightsaber just so that disney can sell like a shitload of new toys like the different colored lightsaber i thought that kind of pissed me off (laughs) um the um, if that that pisses you off i hate to tell you something about star wars dude (laughs) yeah i know i know i know i know but it just it again it just felt so 
I don't know, man. It was so all over the place. And then the emotional payoff again. I didn't feel like the first, I'd say, two-thirds of the film for me. I was like, what the fuck is going on here? Like, did there there was like no editor in this script. They tried to cover way too many things. The whole thing about, by the way, spoilers uh, for everybody out there. Um, But the whole thing where supposedly Ray, like, maybe kills Chewie. Like, again, I didn't give a shit. What what the hell was going on there? Like, they're almost advertising that they're cowards. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it was so shitty. Like, first of all, they should have fucking killed somebody. Like, kill fucking Chewie. That would have been interesting because then you would have at least seen Ray have to struggle with the anger and the darkness. And then here's the worst thing. There was this is, goes back to the whole point about bringing up the the Luke and Darth Vader tension. There was no actual um, like tarrying with her struggle whatsoever. Yeah. They just rushed so hard over. Hey, we got to correct the fact that all the fandom got angry that Ray's parents were nobodies. You know, oh no, she's actually a Palpatine. And then, of course, the whole discourse with Palpatine, where he's like, "Strike me down in anger, give yourself over to the dark side." And then he rationalizes with her. He's like, "Ah, oh, but if you do it, I'll make you a deal. Then you save everybody." Then I'm like, "Then if she strikes you down, it's not out of fucking anger because you've just rationalized with her and she's made a <laughs> rational decision, dumb fuck." Like, there's no anger here. And I was like, so this actually doesn't show you any anger. And then the only time, and this is my last thing I'll say because I've been talking too long. The only time (laughs) the audience made a a, a cohesive sound was when fucking she kisses Kylo. My audience literally went, uh, the audience literally went, oh. (laughs) Like like a a groan? Groan, bro. Like (laughs) groaned. Now, I don't know if that's just because Australians are funny, um, So, and it's different than maybe like the people who are really rooting for it in America, you know, Raylo or whatever the fuck they've dubbed that relationship. But oh I, I, didn't, I didn't audibly groan, but I did roll my eyes. I was like, oh, it just was – okay. Oh, yeah, and the last thing. I'm sorry. The last thing I got to say. I almost really liked Kylo's turn. I think they could have done a really good job of Kylo's turn, but it just happened again too quickly. They rushed – too quickly because they wanted to keep the fo- the film short and i get it but they basically like you know how people complain about the end of the harry potter films how it's like they tried to do like there's too much stuff going on in this short amount of time so they had to break up like the final one into two parts or whatever it is like yeah. i almost feel like they, they they had to do that with what they tried to cover the terrain they tried to cover and then here's the other thing they obviously introduced other storylines because they're going to offshoot like the the, the woman that they meet on the on the one uh, on the one planet that becomes like Finn's sidekick. Apparently mm-hmm. in apparently in the in the universe, the Star Wars universe, that's Lando's daughter. So that's Lando Calrissian's daughter. So the whole thing where she's like, "Oh, I don't really know where I'm from either," and he's like, "Well, we're gonna have to find out." Immediately when I watched that, I rolled my eyes again because I was like, "Oh, there's another side off, or <laughs> another that's another Disney property. She's gonna have her own story where." And I'm cool. Like I understand they gotta set up this universe, but it just felt like such. A property, an intellectual property for the furthering of commodities that I just – of their commodity. I just I, – I had such a fucking hard time at a story level, at a formal level, at a financial level, at a model. It just – I struggled, bro. I really struggled. That's interesting. No, I, I think I, I recognize almost everything you said there um, as things that I also noticed. Um, I, I also think that, that Kylo's storyline on paper is super interesting, right? He's right. this like son of of um, galactic like royalty of heroes, right? And that's going to come with some some huge internal struggle, right? Trying to live up to that, and that can easily lead you to becoming a sort of villain and rationalizing yourself as as sort of um, the the well intentioned uh, rebel. Which he of course casts himself, right? He doesn't cast himself as like 
bringing back the Empire, even though he sees Darth Vader as his hero in the first film, he tells Rey, let's do our own thing, right? That's let's right. get away from this stuff that we can't ever live up to and do our own thing. That was super interesting. And then yeah. they just, they don't really focus much on that. They almost are afraid of the dark parts, right? That's it. Killing Chewie. Can you really do that? No, you can hint at it, but then you can't actually do it because that would be too interesting, right? To have Ray lean towards the dark side because she feels this immense guilt from her powers escaping her, right? Or, or being beyond her grasp. That's right. But they can't really go down that road, right? Um, which, of course, is, you know, that's they, they didn't really want to... Um, it's a film for kids, and so they don't want to face some of that criticism, right? The very yeah. fact that I think they um, had Luke sort of struggle with um, you know, his heroism in the intervening years between the trilogies, right? And there was so much criticism from the fandom about the idea that Luke would actually ever stray in any sense, right? That he had any weaknesses. No, he's a super mm. powerful Jedi. He's, he's good eternally, right? Um, there was so much criticism about that. I think they got afraid to sort of delve into the dark parts of any of the characters. And they certainly weren't going to have Ray kill Chewie, right? Because then they're like scar kids forever or whatever. Um, right. But yeah, that, those would have been interesting in terms of uh, making a film and characters that were believable in terms of struggling with things, but they weren't ever going to do that. Uh, yeah, and it's so weird, dude, that all these things that Ryan Johnson set up, which I thought were kind of interesting, um, th- mm. thematically at least, right? The That Ray's just a random person, right? Just someone um, on a desert planet, Right. Uh, and that the force is sort of democratically operated, right? So it's anybody can have it. It's just kind of random, right? No, no, no. Mm-hmm. She's got to be one of the um, aristocratic uh, lineages. And so it can't be Skywalker. I mean, so now it's got to be Palpatine. <laughs> Finn, Finn had an interesting story, and they did a really terrible job with this. Because in the first one, remember, he wields the lightsaber. And you're thinking that mm-hmm. they're setting up. That yeah. this guy is going to be a real his character. I felt like they did a real disservice to his character actually throughout the second. So and third interesting, film. dude. He's just a random workaday stormtrooper who joins, yep. who rejects it, and then joins the forces of good. That's super interesting. And then they just don't do anything with that theme. <laughs> no. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm sure he'll have his own spinoff. I mean, I would imagine he's a beloved character, and but. They, the only thing they did that they tried to make it interesting was that one, he can be like a mentor with this with this other – I mean that's probably what the spinoff will be, right? It will be the two of them going to find like who she is and her family because they both have that commonality. They were both members of the, the, the troopers and stuff like that. But he's like feeling the force. She's like, how do you know? And he's like, because I can feel it like in the in this new one. And I'm like, I get it. But that was totally ignored in the second. And so J.J. Abrams just like, well, fuck you, Johnson. I'm going back to what I kind of set up in the first one. But they did it in a way that just felt so – it felt so disconnected from from everything. And I felt it just – it was very unfortunate. I thought the way they handled his character. I'm still hoping for the uh, Oscar Isaac, John Boyega, homoerotic. Uh, That's what everyone was anticipating, adventure. right? Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it, yeah. man. Brokeback Moon or whatever. <laughs> I mean, do you want to talk about the lesbian kiss? What, what's your take? Well, so here's the thing. So I have been listening to a lot of my friends in the gay community, and I have heard – so I've got a friend who's a pretty prominent actor and acting coach in L.A. who basically was saying that he felt it was very interesting that, one, you get this very sort of um, undeveloped lesbian romance there's nothing about them when all they had to do was to make some sort of connection with them known prior like if someone was going off to battle be like hey you know like 
stay safe, you know, or something like that. Like something really simple that would have shown that this was actually a relationship rather than just a token to try to tick the progressive box, which is how he felt. He felt that that was kind of upsetting. Um, oh, he's gay, by the way, too. I don't know if I said that at the outset. But um, and then the other thing is, as he said, it's also really interesting that you can, it, it seems, and, and I don't know if this is true, so it'd be really interesting actually to hear people's takes on this, especially if you are part of the gay community. Um, he said that it's also very interesting that they chose to do it with two women. He said because women are still viewed, when women kiss, it's tender, it's nice, it's kind. You can still have, like, obviously, you know, people are like, oh, but like women are like fluid with their sexuality. He's like, but dudes, he's like, it's still viewed as kind of weird and aggressive and against nature. And he's like, and I can't help but think that they had two women kiss because that's still much more acceptable in our society. Two moms, unthreatening, very nice. And they don't even develop the story whatsoever. It's just kind of like this celebratory moment. And he felt like that really kind of was like um, a very poor or maybe, not, not a poor, that it was, what did he say? I think it was like a missed moment is how he put it. And I thought that was kind of an interesting take. Was there, was there a lot of uh, right-wing outrage about that? You know, I didn't hear any, but I guarantee you there will be, or there is, or was, but I didn't see any. Yeah. I do wonder if, if part of that choice to do it with two women instead of two men was just the outrage will be, there'll be some, right. And maybe that'll even draw some traffic but it won't be as much as if there were two men. And so that yeah. sort of gets a little bit of a middle ground. We can do our progressive thing, not get criticized at all for tampering it down, um, but then also not stoke as much outrage. Yeah. We got to make yeah, sure the Rotten Tomato scores don't fall below like 60 or whatever, right? <laughs> Have you seen, what is the what is the Rotten Tomato score? Do you know? I don't know. I'll look it up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean... And then I think the last thing that I just want to say is my criticism that I forgot is I just felt that the film was so drippingly saccharine and overly yeah. sentimental. And I get it. And, and in one sense, that is Star Wars. I don't think that the, the original three are. I don't think four, five, and six are sentimental. Mm. I think that they I mean, are. you do. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, give your take first and I'll give mine. Well... Here, here's the thing. I think I, I think this is a really bad film from a filmic perspective. Just formally, you're talking. Yeah. Yes. I don't think it's a good film. But here's the weird thing where it might sound totally contradictory now. I'm actually – I'm okay with it as a piece of fan service. And I know that that's how a lot of the reviews judged the film. Um, that it was like an adequate piece of fan service. I know some people loved it because they felt the emotional connection and they felt all of the loose ends that were tied, that they felt that they wanted to be tied and stuff like that. And and in that sense, I'm actually, I'm kind of in a weird way, I, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing. Maybe it's um like a kind thing that J.J. Abrams did. But insofar as it is a piece of fan service, I feel like it was kind of like very nice, right? But... It's still like a bad film. If that does that make any sense? Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I, I do think that you know, as much as I think that we can't really criti critically appraise the first three films because of our you know emotional attachment to them, I do think that you know I've watched them or pieces of them as an adult at times, and as much as I'm able to be objective about them, I do think that they're not good films uh, or not like great films. Uh, as much as I think they're 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 better than this trilogy in a lot of respects, especially like in terms of the acting, like Harrison Ford, right? Um, and there's certain choices in the films that I think 
were darker and were more radical than this trilogy certainly was, right? So yeah. but I don't think that they're, they certainly aren't as great as they're held up to be. It has a lot to do with the emotional attachment of people who were young when they watched them. Um, these films, I think, they effectively, I think, recreate some of that sort of, you know, it's like saccharine sentimentality that the original films did with people who were young at that time. And that maybe we're just too much into the critical era now where um, for people like us, it's just not going to ring, right? It's not going to grab us and make us feel the same way. Um, we're going to see the chewy thing and not be relieved that he's alive, <laughs> which we would have been if that had happened in the first three films. Right. Um, mm. So I do think that, you know, it obviously is a kind of fan service. Right. And that I think deserves its own kind of criticism because there's this really interesting structural contradiction about fan service. Fan service is about recreating the moment and the feeling of an original, right? An original moment, some lost thing, right? Yes. And that's, there's its own, like, you know, like Lacanian thing going on that we can talk about. But what's interesting about that is to recreate that original feeling, you can never really do it because that original feeling only was the way it was because it was unique to itself, right? It was the first. Nothing was yeah. like it before. So you can't recreate the newness of it unless you do something totally different, right? Which creates its own moment. So fan service has this kind of contradiction about it which is that you can't ever recreate the first moment of something because you can't recreate the unique aspect of it the uniqueness aspect of it and so that's what i think ultimately is kind of um disvaluable about this film especially is that it doesn't do anything new and that return of the um, last jedi excuse me as much as it has certain problems to it right it at least had some moments where it was like oh, okay this is a little bit yeah. different i'm interested in this story I'm interested in, in Kylo saying, let's do our own thing. What, what, what the hell is that going to be, right? That's new. That's mm -hmm. not part of the, the, the good versus evil binary that we've been told about um, existing in the Force for you know all eternity or whatever. So that was interesting. Um, but then, of course, they decided that was bad, and we should just go back to redoing the old films to the point where like, the end of Rise of Skywalker was basically note for note the same as Return of the Jedi. They even had like... In Return of the Jedi, remember, at the very end of the film, there's like this three events all happening at once. There's uh, Luke and Vader and Emperor Palpatine, right, doing their uh, back and forth about, you know, whether Luke's going to strike him down in anger or not, right? Which, mm -hmm. can I add, is I kind of love how Kantian that whole thing is. Because it's like, it's not killing me that's going to make you go to the dark side. It's the motive mm -hmm. for killing me that's going to make you go to the dark side, right? It's yeah. the anger. Well, that that's, drives that's what your maximum. <laughs> that's what I was talking about with this one. There was like no motive. She, he changes the motive. He rationalizes with her in um at the end of this one here. And it's like, no, it's the fucking motive, man. That's what does it. It's the angry motive that means you've given over to the dark side. Yeah. Yeah, but she doesn't do it in anger, right? She does it with all of the Jedi throughout all eternity in righteous indignation. And that's okay. Um, so yeah, some people don't get that, that there's this Kantian um, like maxim idea behind the behind this whole yeah. This whole plot device. But anyway, there's that scene, right? When Emperor Palpatine, Vader, and Luke. Then there's the the you know, the rebellion in space. And Palpatine keeps pointing to them, being like, they're all gonna die, right? It's the trap mm. that I've laid. Um, and then there's Han and Leia on Endor with the Ewoks, right? And it goes back yeah. and forth between those three scenes, and it's such a suspension build, right? It's mm. as much as Return of the Jedi is the worst of the first three films, that ending was awesome, right? 
is such mm. it's such a suspenseful part of the film. Um, and they just literally recreated that with um, with Ray facing Palpatine oh, and all the way to the end too. With when Kylo you, you there. See the, well, and you see the ghosts even of Luke and Leia that are yeah. like bl- blessing, looking over Ray, which is just like when it's fucking Obi Wan and whoever else, Yoda and everything in the in the Return. Yeah, so they, they're literally recreating scene by scene that thing, which is I guess fine because if it worked the first time, it's gonna I guess work now. <laughs> um, literally, the only point um, I was talking to my uh, my brother about this after it happened, uh, the only point that they changed really. Plot-wise, in terms of Return of the Jedi to Rise of Skywalker, was um, Vader obviously kills Palpatine or doesn't actually kill him, I guess, but um, throws him down the the well or whatever, right? Um, so, and this, if they were going to do that and recapitulate it in this film, it would be Kylo who kills Palpatine, but they can't do that, right? Because they did all this work to build up a female lead to have the white man come in and actually do the deed at the end would be like this kind of betrayal of feminism. So it's got to be the woman with everybody else's help, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. That actually go through with it. That was that was funny. That the only way they, in which they challenged like the original trilogy was just by like in, inserting feminism into it. Um, but yeah, you know, fan service is is what it is. Um, I don't think that that makes it unenjoyable or a bad film, or that you're wrong for liking it or whatever. Certainly, it's just what it is. It's an entertainment product, and that's fine. I do think that you know it kind of it betrays the fact that the original Star Wars trilogy, for whatever faults it has, um, it was unique to its time in a lot of ways. And that's why we loved it in the first place. Mm. Nothing else was like it, even though it, it clearly took a lot from you know classic mythology and the hero's journey and a lot of soap operas and stuff like that. Um, and then you could have made a whole new thing and made it really good and be a unique thing, but they, they that's challenging, man. You're going to piss off a lot of people, and, and they don't want to miss doing that. As I'm sure you're going to talk about in a second here, Star Wars mm-hmm. is mainly a financial instrument, and uh, any challenge to its uh, asset status is a bad thing. So, yeah. content be damned. Um, we're going to make the best financial instrument we can. Yeah, I mean, so that would be my political economic critique. But real quick, I actually do have an art criticism critique, and I'm really glad you mentioned Lacan because one of the things I thought about was while you were talking, and and I thought about this previously, was how I've been thinking about how to understand this as being different from the original trilogy primarily. The original trilogy um, is obviously a type of postmodern derivation. It is referencing westerns. It's a space western, right? Um, Or a space samurai film, which is really a western because Kurosawa is influenced by the westerns, right, of John Ford and shit like that. So it's a space western. So it's it's derivative in that sense. Um, and like so literally, there's Hidden Fortress by Kurosawa, right? Yes, I think it's I think the same that's film. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so there's a sense in which the original one is derivative, but it's less what I would call an emotive pastiche. It's more of a conceptual pastiche. And so I was thinking a lot about Frederick Jameson, who writes about pastiche in. Um, uh, 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 postmodernism, the cultural logic of late capitalism, right? Um, and I was say, I was trying to think to myself though, instead of the way that pastiche is normally understood as being like that, like you know, we think of a Tarantino film where it's like a bricolage of all of these various different 
things where he's like, oh, I want the shot from this film and the shot from that film, and I want her to look like the actress from this, and you got to do the movement like from this person. That's like apparently when you listen to Samuel L. Jackson talk, like that's how Tarantino directs. You know, he's like, oh, oh you know, like in this film when this guy does this, he's like, yeah, you know, it's like that. And I actually think that would be really exciting to be around. But um, but so there's this intentional kind of like process of piecing things together to create this very intentionally derivative pastiche, right? This film for me is, oh, okay. Oh, and then, so the thing that was so interesting about the original trilogy is that it is a cinephile product. Like Lucas is, you know, a USC graduate and he is someone who loves the history of cinema. And so it's a film that has like a lateral um, relation to cinema, but also a vertical relation to history, right? So there's this interesting laterality and, um, or like horizontality, we might say, and verticality that takes place. This film for me doesn't have any of the vertical historical reference, except for those cheap elements that you're talking about. And what, what that means to me is that it actually isn't doing the conceptual pastiche, but it's just purely the emotive pastiche. And that's what, what you talked about, uh, earlier that I thought was really interesting is that this was just purely a product for emotional manipulation to stimulate like libidinal investment right to stimulate the pleasures to um I've been listening to a lot of talks lately and reading a lot about the notion of beauty and how it was understood with like Thomas Aquinas and things like that and I actually revisited a voice or a name from the past this is going to freak you out David Bentley Hart's uh <laughs> Beauty of the Infinite um but uh I've been listening to some talks from him because he talks about Deleuze um and actually gets Deleuze quite right um, uh, in his interpretation of Deleuze. But um, but one of the things he was talking about is the difference between beauty uh, and the sublime in like Aquinas and then in the Patristic Fathers and then also maybe even in someone like Kant and the notion of just being like, um, like of just diversion. And this to me just felt like emotional diversion via what we might call like symbolic pastiche or libidinal pastiche. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think I'm... I'm really tracking with that, with that sort of distinction you're making between the emotional pastiche and the sort of conceptual one. Um, yeah, and I think that's why the exactly- sentimentality was so heavy for me because it was just like, ooh, we have to do this moment that relates to that previous moment that made you feel that way, and we need to reproduce the feeling of that instant in this instant. But they didn't actually create the story that made the payoff of that original moment so potent. Yeah, I think you're right because the conceptual pastiche serves up the emotional pastiche. Right? It's in service yeah. of the conceptual one, but the emotional one happens, right? It's derivative of it. And so that feels more earned. Um, yeah. Whereas when you just go straight to the drug, it's just streamlined, <laughs> it's mainlining the emotional pastiche. It just feels like, holy shit, like I'm just getting way too high too fast. And then chocolate you just Jesus, it. baby. Yeah, it's that chocolate Jesus. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And you know, can I can I say that I think that Rogue One is the example that's most like the original films in terms of actually being a formally, I think pretty good film. Mm-hmm. Um, and then being able to serve up a little bit of the conceptual stuff, the original trilogy did, even though it, it's not as like mythos focused, obviously. Um, but there certainly are ideas about like sacrifice and um, greater good or working for a greater good and oppression and stuff that are, that are in that film. And then the emotional uh, payoff for that comes from the fact that, some of these characters die and some of these characters don't win out in the end. And it's not just about the friends we've made along the way, right? 
and doesn't have mm. this sense of like that the, the Skywalker does, which is your friends never really leave you. No one ever betrays you. No one ever really leaves you, right? Even when they die, they're still there and they can still like high five you and like, mm-hmm. like catch stuff that you throw and shit like that, like play catch <laughs> with you, even though your dad's left you and when he went to get a pack of cigarettes when you were 12, he's still always there. Um, Rogue One, I think. Also, is also how much of a of how fuck you, you right. Ryan Johnson, is that moment when Luke catches the saber and he's like, I was wrong. And you're like, oh, okay. Oh, for sure. 100%. <laughs> it's so weird that like one of the greatest American filmmakers of this era, like one of the great auteurs of this era is basically being like publicly shamed by Star Wars people. <laughs> it's yeah. so weird, dude. Yeah, what is dude. happening? Like, I'm, I don't think Ryan Johnson's like, you know, uh, Coppola or something. But um, he certainly is one of the most well-respected filmmakers of this era, right? Like, he's got to be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to just, yeah, to just, like, throw him down and, and publicly, like, criticize him. It's, it's really strange. Yeah. But did you like Rogue One? Uh, I did. I mean, it's been a while since I've seen it now. Uh, I, I saw it when it first came out, and um, I did. I, I didn't love it, but I liked it. I enjoyed it. I'd yeah. be curious to go back and watch that, having watched this new trilogy, and see if there's some important yeah. formal differences between them. Yeah. I was actually just thinking that I kind of, I kind of got inspired while you were just talking there and I was like, Oh yeah, fuck. Maybe I'll watch that this week. Actually. I kind of, I wrote it down and I was like, Oh, just don't forget maybe to watch it if you have time, you know? Yeah. So you got any other takes? I mean, you kind of hinted, I, I don't want to kind of like beat the dead horse, but uh, you did say like star Wars is not, uh, a film it's a financial instrument or maybe you didn't say it's not a film i'm gonna say it's not a film it's a financial <laughs> instrument um and, and what i mean by that is i'm not just trying to like be an elitist or something like that i'm actually trying to be quite critical from the perspective of um like how it is that that films are made so primarily right now films are made through like the securing of the asset value through like global pre-sales and through the maintenance of uh the ip and the likelihood of um, like sequels and merchandise and things like that, right? So it's an asset that is a part of a portfolio. And what that then means also is that actors are variables within a price model that looks at, you know, the history of the value of such and such an actor, um, the history of the like in fucking solo, you think the dude that played Han is going to be getting the phone call for the next uh, like Han <laughs> stuff super quickly? Probably not. I mean, there was a lot of shit talking about him on set, even that they brought in like acting coaches and stuff like that. And people weren't happy with them. And so, you know, like that stuff goes in as an input, uh, as a variable that is in a pricing algorithm, uh, some sort of linear algebraic equation where you have little variables that are inputs that you put in the actors, the crew, you know, this Uh, The colors on the poster have to fit this, you know, the kind of like blue and yellow scheme that all the the poster, the posters follow as like the color palette. And, um, you know, you have to have certain sound effects and the trailers are designed in a certain way. That's why trailers are so predictable and they all kind of do the same thing. And all of these things are variables that go into how it is that you price the asset, right? And then the film basically carries you, the audience, as the guarantee of you know uh, pre-sales that they can sell to financiers that they can say okay well will you finance will you back our product because you're going to get you know x amount of projected return on investment through these various things right and of course the financiers now are like disney and whoever it is that supports the coffers in disney right and so basically then what you have as producers is producers are just business development officers and portfolio managers 
that can secure your uh, the value of your asset because you have control over the appropriate variables that you can put into your pricing model that you can then sell to the financiers so that you can get a huge return on your investment. And so the problem is, is not so much, I'm not trying to just shit on the the model of uh, the the way that film is financed, even though I think that is a really potent area of analysis that really needs some like deep critique. I actually thought about this would be a really fun project one day. But um, but more than that, it's the effect that that has on the quality of the film. So when Scorsese comes out and criticizes the Marvel films, his primary criticism was that there was no risk, right? Because these films are market researched and they're basically tailor-made to just feed people the expectations that they already have, to give them what they want. And so for Scorsese, there's this magicianship in artistry that is lost that takes place in that like infinite gap between the director and the product and then between the product and the viewer. And it's that there's like a there's like a sorcery almost that takes place. Now Scorsese, I think, is a Platonist. Um, I actually was trying to write a, a wisecrack video about this and we couldn't quite get our handle on it. But because Scorsese believes that there are truths of cinema and truths and morals, and he views himself as like the Socratic ironist that can kind of put the ideas out there in dialectical tension and then leave you with the resources, the tensions and the paradoxes and the frustrations, you know, from characters who are good and bad and historical circumstances that are tense and fraught and things like that and that we can go away with them and then we can like kind of like maybe achieve these higher moral truths or cinematic truths even and and I don't want to go so elitist and say that I buy that I buy that fully but there is a sense in which when you have a film that is just simply a financial product like a Marvel film or a Star Wars film you do lose that risk and the reason why is because everything is just simply reduced to um, is made commensurable via the price mechanism, the profit motive, um, the maintenance of the rating of the asset, that kind of thing. And so you get a sort of like theology and a theodicy where everything is sort of um, uh, conditioned by, explained by, the success and failure is all determined by, so the moral goods and bads are all set by, then the sort of like political eco political economic control about who's cast and what way is the script written, that's all controlled by this larger parameter, this larger maybe transcendental, and that is what I think is ultimately problematic, especially because this model is going to just start becoming even more ubiquitous. And I think that for the sake of the artistry of film and cinema, I don't think that, that that's a that's a good thing, ultimately. Yeah, I mean, it's the very reason why, other than Christopher Nolan, all the highest grossing films of the past decade were parts of franchises because they have guaranteed returns, right? And we'll only see that from now on because otherwise it's too risky. You can't make... Um, start a new franchise or try attempt to because it's it's a risk in terms of the asset value um so why do that when you can just funnel more money into expanding current franchises and then can i yeah. also add that the worst part of all of this to me at least mm. practically or on the superficial level is taking some of our greatest talents in cinema and just kind of embarrassing them on screen like mm. dom hall gleason is one of the great young actors of our generation and he was just literally put in this movie to be made fun of. And not in terms of being a comic character, but actually being a character who just, can he please die already? You're just like waiting, just joyously waiting for someone to just wipe him off screen or for him yeah, to And the way he and, dies was so unceremonious and boring. It was like, so oh. weird. Like it was trying to be funny, but it was like, what the fuck? 
<laughs> what is Because he this? was the comic relief of the first two films a lot of times, you know? And bad comic relief at that. It yeah. was never funny. Um, but yeah, him, Adam Driver, obviously was not having fun doing this film, I don't think. Maybe mm. I'm just I'm just interpreting it through my own uh, lens, but he seemed like he was groaning the entire time doing this these films. Um, John Boyega, obviously, from uh, Attack the Block, was fantastic, and we already talked about the mischaracterization of him in these films. Um, even in the Marvel films, the same thing, right? Scarlett Johansson and Brie Larson and um, all these like, indie actors who uh, I think do these Daisy great Ridley. Films. I think Daisy Ridley could be a really good actor, but you can't tell unless you have a meaty fucking script. So she's done other stuff, and I've yeah. kind of been like, oh, I'm okay with it. And, you know, you just can't tell because there's a style of acting that you have to do. When you're in these films, first of all, when you're acting in just in front of a green screen, it's actually quite difficult when you don't have stuff to hold on to. And when you're just like you have to pretend that shit's going on behind you, that actually does. It, it is very difficult to do that appropriately. Like it's very different yeah. to do. Uh, yeah, go ahead. But like Alec Guinness and Harrison Ford did it. <laughs> so I think you can do it right. You actually have to have some some like content to deal with, though, right? Like the prequel films had uh, great actors in them. And they all were awful because there was nothing yeah. there to work with. I mean, if Ray had That's actually true. killed Chewbacca and we had seen her deal with that guilt and come out the other side, like maybe on the dark side or dabbling in the dark side, then she could have acted. But they never gave – they gave her two seconds to feel the guilt and make a sad face and then he was back. So there was yeah. never a chance for her to act, I don't think. Yeah, that's true too. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean that's the other thing is that if you reduce everybody to – to variables for uh, a pricing input or for a pricing model that also affects like what you can do on screen. And there is a type of acting. So you have all of these people who are taking acting classes by all the same acting teachers. You know, you got to study Strasberg and Adler and Meisner or whoever the fuck it is that you gravitate towards. But they're all acting in the same way because they're all in LA. And I know because I was at one of the most kind of like important acting studios for young actors right now, Tony Mindel, um, who I still take classes actually here in Sydney because they got a class, uh, a studio out here in Sydney. But Mindel is, he's fantastic. But the thing that's amazing about him is that he's like, fuck all of that other shit, man. We got to do different <laughs> stuff, right? And so that's why like so many, like Shailene Woodley is one of his young hot stud actors because she is like, she the people gravitate to what it is. And Michael Arden is another one of his young actors because they're gravitating to the novelty of this, you know? Um, but other than that, you just have this like homogenous style that you act in a particular way, which is like, you know, kind of like why all soap opera acting looks the same and why so many mm. studio films, the acting all looks the same. There's like a way that you're supposed to act. There's like a body language that you're supposed to emulate on screen and, and all that stuff just becomes so flat and mimetic. And I think that's one of the other problems, which then also means that the way you light a scene, the way you shoot a scene, the way you edit a scene, the way the music uh, accompanies to build up a particular moment, it's all pre-scripted according to, again, the pricing model to create the desired outcome so that people will become libidinally invested consumers so that they can package us to financiers. So it's like in the, it's like the turn that, Chomsky and I can't remember what the co-author's name is in Manufacturing Consent where they talk about how the readers are not the – the uh, con we're not the um, – what's it called? We're not the customer. We're the product. We're the product that they're selling to the advertisers. It's very similar here. The audience are not the customer. We are the product that is being packaged and sold to the financiers on the stock market to make sure that Disney's share price stays lucrative. 
That's that's what's going on here. And this is something that's taking place throughout the entire economy. This is something Michelle Ferrer writes about in his amazing book, Rated Agency. But it's about how everything is about the rating and the maintenance of the rating. The corporation's concern is to the shareholders, which means that everything that they produce is ultimately about the maintenance of the share price. That's exactly then to all the products that are produced. All the elements of that corporation are simply elements and inputs, variables for this algorithm that can maintain the rating. And that is so disconcerting to me. So I have a question for you. Um, Is the sort of Netflix, Amazon model where original films that they produce are not individual assets, is that any sort of panacea for what you're pointing out here? Or is it just in service of the same thing since... Netflix and Amazon are are caring about their own but their own stock prices. Their platforms, man, it's even worse because they're <laughs> they're they're advancing like big data and the platform economy and the whole like turn towards neo feudalism that Evgeny Muratsov writes about. Um, here's the thing. Okay, so that's my doom and gloom. Everything sucks. Everything's just become homogenized and becoming like uh, inputs for pricing models within the asset economy. True. Here's the question: Is there anything that escapes? Is there anything novel? So I want to then, here's the twist, right? Uh, if I've done, the, what, are, what are the three points um, from the film Prestige? There's the uh, the first moment, the turn, and then there's the prestige, right? Here's the yeah. prestige. Here's, here's, here's the, like, <laughs> the, the magic trick that can save us all. Um, the thing is, is, is there something that can escape? And I think that, so Alain Badiou talks about uh, the difference between like, I can't remember what he calls it. It's like bourgeois art and then, some other kind of art, and then the possibility for proletarian art. And proletarian art, for like lack of a kind of like deep analysis, because I can't remember everything that he says right now, um, but it's this idea of something that that uh, operates at like at the evental space, that erupts through, we might say, the transcendental coordinates of the worlds, right? Or through the serial mimetic conditions. It's something that comes from that excess that isn't entirely homogenized. So can a film or can a property like Star Wars or can some other filmic property on Netflix or Amazon exhibit those characteristics that are excessive of that larger isomorphic tendency? And I do think so. I think a film TikTok, like the last... Right? What's up? TikTok. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> um, although there is some creative shit going on. But I think a film like The Last Jedi that can offer some kind of curious excess, right? Like the democratization of the force where you pause for a minute and you're like, fuck, okay, that's different. I think, I think that that's possible, right? Like I think it is possible to have moments like in the interstitial spaces that can speak forth of a kind of radical otherness or some kind of freedom beyond the bounds of the isomorphic tendency of the assetization of the economy. So I do think that there's something that's possible. I just think it's very difficult. But I think it's there. Um, I just think it's very quickly being incorporated into um, resources for the furtherance of the, the, the asset economy. Yeah, and that's a good point. And as you're saying that, you know, I'm thinking, not to to rehash this, but isn't Rogue One kind of hinting at that because yeah. you know in the in the original A New Hope, um, one of the interesting facets about it that people tend to kind of gloss over is the terrorists are the good guys, right? So they're not cast that way, right? They're cast as the rebellion, but they basically go and they bomb public facilities, 
right? Mm. That they do like terrorist actions and then they're cast as the good guys. But that's that's really glossed over in a way. Mm. Um, whereas Rogue One makes that pretty explicit. These people are politically oppressed and they strike back, yeah. right? Through kind of like terrorist actions in a lot of ways. And you can't get around that. Like it's very clearly a political film. Uh, I'm not going to say it's like this great piece of art or anything, but it does tend to get at that kind of like that subversive nature of the original that is weird. And and I think maybe if we went back and watched it now, we'd feel like this seems so alien from the the themes of the rest of the films with this like grand mythology of good and evil. And it's very simplified and there's no risk and um, we're never really going to have too much danger of characters moving to the dark side. We'll just hint at it. Um Whereas maybe maybe Rogue One does a little bit more of that, and maybe a future film, uh, if you know someone like a a Ryan Johnson, some auteur who's willing to, to they're re- never going to let that happen again. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Um, but in in the popular franchises, it's it's maybe possible. Yeah. But maybe we just need to stop looking at the popular franchises as anything other than these to this asset model. Maybe yeah. you know, great cinema is going to have to come from other spheres. Um, and maybe you know, as much as. Uh, Netflix and Amazon are platforms and that opens up all these new avenues for for being terrible. They do seem to give filmmakers um, carte blanche in a lot of ways, or at least in some ways. As far as I know, maybe I'm incorrect about that. Um, and maybe that opens up new avenues for for really challenging filmmakers to do real original work. Or maybe A24 is just the only production company that's going to make good films from now on. I don't know. Oh, I love A24. <laughs> um, yeah, I... I you know, I I hate sounding like a, a cinema snob or like an elitist when it comes to art or something like that. But it's not, it's not that simple like cartoons or simple stories are bad. That's not what I'm saying. So I, I'm not trying to say that it has to be Wings of Desire where it's meditating upon like existential themes in the post-war landscape of Germany that's all bleak. And it doesn't have to be navel-gazing. Like... It, it can be um it can be a children quote unquote children's film. I think Pixar films are brilliant, right? Like, how do they fucking do it every single time? You know, like maybe if they get some fucking Pixar people into the the Star Wars spinoffs, then they can do something good because the story craft is just so well executed in those films, right? But it's also really difficult when you're trying to make a four quadrant film. If you're trying to appeal to every demographic, you water it down. Right? Like, I don't know how Pixar does it, but they fucking do it successfully. And so far, the Marvel films, for the most part, you know, I mean, maybe a couple exceptions, but they kind of just don't seem to have it down yet, you know, from a from a script perspective. Not that they can't be entertaining and that they don't do well. Of course they do. Um, but uh, it's just, I just think it's really difficult to make that that kind of film. But it's not impossible. It's not impossible to make like a children's film that I would find to be gorgeous or beautiful or important or something like that. It doesn't have to be high art, quote unquote, you know, like I fucking yeah. I, I like I like silly stuff. I like TikTok. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not film, but I mean, I think that Adventure Time is one of the kind of great works of art of the past decade or so. And that's a children's cartoon. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it, it's definitely not the case that it has to be this like meta navel gazing, um, you know, really bourgeois kind of art to be art, right? Um, It just happens to be the case that the most popular things, of course, because they try to appeal to every demographic are going to be a little bit more superficial. But there's nothing, the superficiality has nothing to do with 
Um, or I shouldn't say it's superficiality, but the appeal to to younger generations has nothing to do with it not not being art. That, that's total uh, misconstrual of the critique. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, what are your final thoughts on this madness? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm a little bit less pessimistic than you are. Um, <laughs> even though I think I, I agree with everything you said, and I think you've even made some points that I didn't really think about that I think are exactly correct uh, about the films and their relation to the original trilogy. Uh, I do think that it, the, these films are fan service and that's fine. And um, they serve that purpose better or, or worse, depending upon the film and certain parts of the films. Um, but that's not a big deal. I think if you're expecting uh, this new trilogy of Star Wars films to like wreck the world and have the same impact that the original trilogy did in the late 70s, early 80s, and that was a problem of, you know, uh, of expectations more than anything. Um but yeah, hmm. they'll sell a shitload of toys. And I still like Baby Yoda, so I'm cool with that. I haven't seen that yet. The Mandalorian, I haven't it, watched it. It's actually, it's pretty good. Like, you know how you're talking about how the original films were kind of like a space western? Yeah. They they really dive into that in Mandalorian. Um, okay. And it's, it's actually kind of funny because as much as all television series now are serialized and have one big overarching storyline, even between like five seasons, right. to the point where it's like, oh my God, get to the plot already. Mm-hmm. Um Mandalorian actually is kind of like MacGyver. <laughs> like Episodic. Very, until the end, the last couple episodes were uh, part of a bigger storyline. But like the middle episodes were all like these little episodic things that almost had nothing to do with each other. And That's it's not so like funny. great or anything, but it was kind of like, wow, this is kind of cute that we can go back to this. Like, you know, 90s style of um, like uh, network drama or whatever. Um, I kind of enjoyed that. Although, what so the fuck? Star Why Wars would you CSI? cast... No, go ahead. Yeah, exactly. Um, why would you cast Pedro Pascal and then, I don't want to spoil anything, but at least for the vast majority of the show, never show his face? Like, speaking of taking our, our best talents and just kind of neutering them, Pedro Pascal's got to be like the most charismatic actor in Hollywood. Like, in the, he's in the short list of most charismatic actors in Hollywood, right? I mean, the dude was cast as fucking Oberyn Martell in Game of Thrones, who's like a fan favorite character, and he killed it in that role. I didn't um, watch Game of Thrones, so I don't know this guy. Yeah, I know you don't, but for people out there who know, this is the proof that Pedro Pascal is awesome and charismatic, and you want to be his best friend. Oh, he right? was in Narcos. Was he in Narcos? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I know who he is. Yeah, he's he's amazing. And then to cast him as a as a totally kind of neutered role is sad. At least it's yeah. a miscast, it seems like. Or maybe it's just like the attempt to get his name on the marquee or something. I don't know. But yeah, it's worth watching. I enjoyed it. You get, I'm in it for the memes, is what I'm in it for. Okay. Baby, yeah, Baby Yoda, Yoda looks memes. like my cat, so that's what I'm in it for. <laughs> Amazing. All right. Well, let's go ahead and move on then. All right. So last year we had the Sticky Leaves show. This is where one of us talks about whatever it is that brings us meaning in a potentially meaningless asset fueled universe. So, Austin, what's uh, got intrinsic value and not only instrumental value for you this week? Well, first of all, this isn't going to be my sticky leaves, but I do want to say thank you for recommending Flannery O'Connor. And I just want to double down and recommend other people to read Flannery O'Connor. I just finished actually today, but her first novel, Wise Blood, and um, I really enjoyed the read. Uh, It's a really quick read. It's only like 150 pages or something like that. But it's got all these amazing themes about kind of the breakdown of 
somebody post-faith kind of dark perspective on South and America and some strange figures and some cool religious themes. So definitely check that out. But My Sticky Leaves is a book that I'm reading, but it's an academic text, but it's one that I really want to recommend to people. Um, it is called Enchantments of Mammon. And I have talked with Troy about this because we, I think, are going to maybe talk about this author, Eugene McCarraher's, uh, maybe an essay that he wrote um, called We Have Never Been Disenchanted. But um, I just want to talk about this book for a second because it um, it's a big book. He's a historian, but it's one of those books that I think is – it creates a really – interesting, what I, I, I sometimes refer to um, in my own work as a conceptual narrative. So rather than just an historical narrative, like this person did this, and then they did that, and then they did that, which is like at the level of plot, this in the terms of like story writing would be considered like a designing principle, right? It's a conceptual narrative. And the conceptual narrative that he's painting in this book, The Enchantments of Mammon, is uh, basically in the subtitle, which is How Capitalism Became the Religion of Modernity. And what he's arguing is that there's historically been um, this perceived split that comes particularly from the work of Max Weber uh, in the age of modernity between, let's say, public secular politics or political economy and then private religion and that they were completely separated. Now, if you were here and you heard us going through Dan Barber's On Diaspora, Barber does a really good job of kind of also deconstructing this myth, the myth of the secular that is supposedly this pure, neutral, like freedom from the mystification of religion kind of critique, right? McCarraher does not take the same path as Barber because Barber wants to ultimately argue that the only way out of this tendency is through a uh, kind of thinking from radical eminence, whereas McCarraher is definitely a Christian, ultimately in the end. He's uh, kind of like a Heideggerian theologian type. So his solution is ultimately some kind of like um, new theology. He talks about how this new religion of modernity that capitalism instituted is actually a perversion of theology. So for him, he definitely has a kind of like religious intent, right? But with that said, even if you don't like, I think, where he's ultimately going to come down, um, the historical path that he traces, this conceptual narrative that he traces, is, I think, really uncontestable in setting up the fact that what we have in modernity is a type of, um, is a type of religious enchantment where commodities, I mean, Marx calls commodities the god of uh, gods of, or the god of money, or I'm sorry, he calls money the god of commodities. So you have commodities that are kind of like imbued with this like liturgical power or a sacramental power. You have money that is kind of like this metaphysical standard by which all of the commodities and objects in the world are converted so that they can be exchanged. But again, this all has this metaphysical value behind it. And I think that McCarraher's case is really well made through this narrative that he establishes from um, like before the Puritans um, all the way through um, like the early PR people and the early rulings uh, where corporations are given personhood, they're granted personhood and oftentimes viewed as being uh, imbued with souls themselves, that they are selves, that they actually have souls that are uh, the handiwork of God. And all of this stuff that isn't 
that isn't fringe ideas, but even someone like Rockefeller who says that God has given me my money and he's given me the responsibility to make more money, which is also something that fuels a lot of his um, his charitable works and things like that. But it's a really interesting text. He's an historian, like I said, so he throws a lot of names and a lot of information at you in a really short amount of time. Of course, I say short amount of time, the book's 700 pages or some shit like that. But um, <laughs> But each chapter, I mean, is they're they're loaded, let's say. But I think it's a very compelling case. It's a very interesting thing, and I do just want to recommend it because I think it it dispels the myth of secularity. I think in quite a, an interesting way that just paints out. You know, there's a lot of stuff in the the post secular writing. Like I obviously have my master's degree with a guy named John Milbank, who's known for his book Theology and Social Theory, that is again arguing that they're the, the, about the myth of secularity. So there's a lot of stuff that's in this world of post-secularity, and this is just another one of those texts. And even though I think I ultimately disagree with him where he comes down on some certain things, and even the way he characterizes um, things metaphysically, philosophically, the book is quite thin. Um, I think the conceptual narrative is very, very useful. So I would recommend the book. Does he deal at all with like Charles Taylor's secular age? Um, yes, yes, a little bit. Uh, but that's in the third part of the book, and I'm only in the f- first and a half part right now. So it's like okay. it's three parts of the book. So the first part is um, so basically what he ultimately does is he says we need to critique capitalism, but we don't need to critique capitalism from like the kind of uh, the the myth of technological progress, which is like the Marxist post Machiavellian kind of idea, we need to uh, use and look to the romantics. So he looks at like William Morris and Carlyle. I think it's Thomas Carlyle and John Ruskin. Um, even though Ruskin and Carlyle are kind of like I think they're Tories. Someone like William Morris is a is a um, is a romantic socialist. So he looks to them and like various others. He looks to Nat Turner, who was a uh, a slave, a famous slave in. Um, who uh, has this like account of, of his life that is called the Confessions. So he looks to them as being like these exceptions outside that were critics of capitalism, but that do like a more sacramental critique of capitalism without trying to themselves be bewitched by some supposed um, neutrality of secularism, which he criticizes like the Marxist and radical tradition of. Um, and then so the third part is where he's ultimately going to engage with Taylor because he says Taylor – himself still buys into this myth of the secular age so that Taylor's criticisms are right, but that actually there is no such thing as secularity, which Taylor does argue. Yeah, it's really interesting. I'm really excited about doing this uh, this essay and diving more into this. This is like the stuff that really gets me going back in the day. Yeah. Same. Yeah. And you know what actually I've been doing, reading alongside it, I've been rereading some of John Milbank's Theology and Social Theory. Um and it's really interesting. I've, I've been having this a lot lately. I mean, you sent me an article from someone that used to be a theological guru for me that I look at now as just being like a fucking idiot. And I, <laughs> I remember John Milbank to me when I first was introduced to him was just such a heavyweight. And then I went through a phase where I was like, fuck that guy. And now I'm kind of <laughs> at a phase where I'm like, yeah, still fuck that guy. But at the same time, I don't even he makes, care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But he makes some really interesting points in theology and social theory that I kind of either had forgotten about or that I just didn't really focus on so much that I'm actually finding quite important for my current project. Um, at least as somebody that I can that I can signal to who takes me back to like resources that I'm just not an expert in, like the. The, the medieval theologians and medieval law and jurisprudence and things like that where a lot of these 
you know, modern philosophers are responding to. And I'm like, oh, yeah, fuck. So when Locke and Hume are talking about, like, you know, the property over the self or something like that, a lot of that is drawn from, you know, these other concerns about dominium and dominium utile and things like that, which is, which are these, like, Latin terms that were really important for understanding just or justice, right? And how they get kind of, like, changed and converted and under Hobbes and Locke and stuff like that. And I was like, okay, so he, he, he helps me out a lot by kind of, like, referring to those to those resources, even though, again... Fuck that guy, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a there's definitely a sort of nostalgia there that's that's problematic when it comes to like dealing with medieval sources. But then the the opposite end, which is the the contemporary trend, which is to just assume that all ideas come like um, you know fully formed in of themselves with no history is um, equally problematic. Yeah, yeah. So, but it's been good, man. It's been really good to to kind of like reread this and or to like revisit some of these themes and then to read this book has been really fascinating. So, I would recommend it's Eugene McCarraher, The Enchantments of Mammon. And like I said, it's a long book, but it's actually really accessible. It's one of those books that like I want my dad to read. You know? <laughs> like like because it's a book that still speaks the language of theology and is concerned with a moral and ethical vision for the world but at the same time is still within the bounds of an orthodoxy and um but 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 without being dogmatic i mean it is dogmatic in the literal sense of the word but it's still a piece of like academic literature and so it's it's just um i don't know and it paints a very compelling case so it's good that's great i'm super excited about doing this essay now and talking more about this Cool, man. You know what we should do? I should send you the book, or you can just get the book and read the intro along with the essay. Okay. And I think that would be really good, because the intro is pretty short, too. And the intro kind of lays out the argument in toto, and then and then we read the essay. So, yeah, yeah, let's do that. Cool. So that's my shit. Check that out. Good fun. And you know what else I've been thinking a lot about, too? It just, and I think I've said this a few times, but I feel like Considering my interests have gone more explicitly philosophical and then now even like you can kind of say political economic critique of political economic, like philosophy of political economy, um, whatever it is, I feel like bad that I spent so much time learning about theology and church history and <laughs> and that I don't use those resources. So I've been trying to really think about how that I can use those resources, like the philosophy of religion stuff. And I did a master's degree in philosophical theology and I've you know, I use some of the philosophy stuff, but I kind of like have pushed aside the theology stuff. And um, I, I'm, I'm really trying to make my next projects like a, a sort of synthesis of what I'm calling like a synthesis of political philosophy, political economy, and then like, I don't know, what would you call it? Like, uh, like ec- theological economy, maybe? Yeah, I mean, like there's a strong history of that, like, like a gambin, obviously. Uh, his book is one of the ones that I fucking love, man. Yeah. So. Yeah, I feel the same yeah. way. There's a sense in which I, I feel like that stuff is kind of left behind. But you also have to acknowledge the fact that that stuff formed your thinking, and so to ignore it is basically just to leave a part of your thinking unchecked. Um, and so you have to reincorporate that stuff into your thinking in order to really acknowledge and honestly, authentically acknowledge the way that it helped formed your current thinking. Um, mm. And it, it, that's a sense in which the academy today, especially in America, just does not have any time for that, right? Mm-mm. All ideas um, exist within a 10-page, 12-page essay. And mm-hmm. 
almost nothing outside of it other than what it references matters. Right? It's just mm-hmm. a thought uh, unique to itself in the, in the universe. And that's, that's unfortunate because we do have to think about the way that our thought is informed by um, the progression of thought over time, right? And through history and through an individual's lifetime as well. And uh, you, can, you can do that without having like this um, sort of nihilism about truth, right? Mm. Which is, I think, the, the worry behind um, that kind of thinking. Or you just make thousand page books and that's how you address that's the other thing. The can I can I just add a <laughs> shitty minute in here? Like as much as I'm enjoying this book, brother, does it have to be 700 pages? Zuboff, does it have to be 500 something pages? Like come on, man. Like I just want to get to a point where I can make books that are like like the size of Wise Blood. I mean, I know it's a novel, but come on, man, it's 150 pages. Now I'm complaining and I'm saying this cuz my book is like 260 pages or something like that too. So, even that's too long, man. So fuck. Yeah, what do they what do they say? Like Hegel was the last person who could have read everything. Yeah. So nowadays, much, if, man. if you want to try to be comprehensive and bring together different disciplines, you're just gonna have to write thousand page books. That's just the way it is. Or you just do like Byung-Chul Han does and just make like 50, 50 page books. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude, just release your chapters one at a time. I'd appreciate that. Yeah, dude. Come on. I mean, I guess they're called journal articles, but they just don't have the prestige of the book and they're not packaged like a book, you know, like a book is so cool. Yeah. Serialized. Like this, this is part of a larger work, but it's going to be released one chapter at a time, one year at a time, something like that. All right. I'm going to contact some publishers and pitch them this idea and get turned down (laughs) by all of them. I want a 10 year book contract. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So yeah, check out the book. It's good shit. Uh, DM me if you need a PDF. All right, should we call it at that? Yeah, let's go ahead and call it. Um, just a reminder, go to enginswim.com, get your academic, not your academic, your athletic gear, <laughs> get your academic gear. Um, get your athletic gear from enginswim.com, 20% off if you use owls at checkout. Um, what else, Troy? How have you not coined the term athletic? Yeah, good fucking point. <laughs> <laughs> You also know where to find us on patreon.com slash owls at dawn to get those uh, multiple tiers of goodies, newsletter, bonus episodes, democracy, you know all that shit. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and I think that's pretty much it. Um, also, go to the Melbourne School for Continental Philosophy, check out their website, sign up for my course, and, uh, and that'll be sick. And I think that is the last thing, unless there's anything else you want to say to the people, Troy. Just one more thing I can think of, dude. What do you have to say as a benediction for 2020? Das Vidania 2019.